You are listening to the Mission Matters Podcast Network, where we amplify the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and experts. Hello, and welcome back to the Future of Building Maintenance and the Mission Matters Podcast Network. I'm your host, Derek E. Moore, and I'm the president and CEO of Building Maintenance of Tomorrow. And today on our show, we have as a guest, Dr. Leon Seard, clinical professor, director of ambulatory urology service at University of California, Irvine, Department of Urology. But before we get started, let's talk about our Mission Matters Minute. Our mission is to identify and engage with other entrepreneurs, business professionals, clients, and friends that want to make an impact in our society and that can also embrace our core values, which are faith, integrity, impact, and abundance in all that we aspire to do. Because when we achieve these four things, there's nothing we can't accomplish together. Once again, our guest today is Dr. Leon Seard. How are you doing today, Doc? I'm doing fine, Derek. Good to be here. Absolutely. Great to have you. Thank you for spending some time with us today. All right. That's great. So I kind of talked about what my core values are and how I run my business and, and run my life. And those are missions that matter to me. You know, what mission matters to you? Basically, in a nutshell, is certainly faith, but to extrapolate that in terms of doing what I was put here to do. There is, that is my mission. And also, in full transparency, is kind of my biggest fear of not fulfilling the mission or not doing what I was put here to do. And so that whatever my hand finds to do, do with all my might, but to the extent of that specific call or purpose, that's what I want to do. And that comes in the context of, of faith, because that's kind of what generates the call in the first place and the mission in the first place. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, that's great. That's great. So yeah, I have a few questions for you today. Yeah. And so we can kind of understand what you do and in your profession and in your industry and kind of why you got into it and the kind of road that you follow as you embark on everything that you do on a daily basis. So my first question to you is, what do you find most rewarding in your profession and or in your community involvement? Great question. I'm a urologist, so that means I kind of deal with, it's a surgical subspecialty in medicine. I deal with the urinary system of both sexes and the reproductive system of men and kind of like a the alternate or the analog of the female obstetrician gynecologist is a urologist. And so that's kind of what my specialty is. And the most rewarding aspect for me is when I'm able to do that on a community non-clinical or at least a non-formally clinical space. One of my biggest joys is when I have people to call me. I mean, for you know, I kind of teasingly say when my mother was alive, she would have people call me and, and say, well, so-and-so has got some problem with their prostate or something with their bladder or whatever or their kidney, and they're going to call you. I'm like, okay. And then I would get these calls and people asking me questions and explanations for what they've been told by their own doctor. And it was a little bit of a kind of teasing point of contention with, with my mother. I would tease. I said, Ma, give me a, you know, tell me when people are going to call, who these people are. But now that she's gone on, it becomes, when that happens, it becomes really an honoring of her memory and her legacy to me by doing that because this is what she got 
he started. So she knew your purpose before you did, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good good point. Good point. So when somebody calls me out of the blue or I get a call from a friend that, hey, I have this friend that I'm strange to me, but you know, they've got this, they just recently diagnosed. Can you talk to them? I said, sure. And when I talk with them, the feeling of the relief that they express and or share that there was someone who kind of explain things and help them what they're going through and even be a an advocate for them or somebody to call or a name to drop when they're in that situation, knowing that they say, oh, doc, thanks for my, you know, I, I've never had this explained to me like this. I didn't understand. Thank you so much. That really, For me, that there's no greater joy from the feeling that, that I've given that sense of peace and understanding and comfort to somebody else. So when I do that, obviously it stems from my profession, but it's more of a community thing. And when I do that, it gives me probably the biggest reward that I can think of in terms of what I do professionally. Oh, that's great. And this goes back to, you know, sometimes, you know, growing up and your parents see you develop and, you know, they see this, this light around you. And sometimes, you know, our elders you know, can really point us in our direction if we pay attention. And yeah, they yeah, know yeah. they know what our true purpose is in life. And and I'm glad that, you know, your mom had the wherewithal to guide you in that direction. Now, did she encourage you to go to medical school? And what got you interested in the industry as a whole? Well, that, yeah, that's great. I think probably on some level, every kid grows up thinking of certain professions. And, you know, as a as a kid growing up in the late 60s and early, late 60s, I guess, yeah, and then into the early 70s, you say, okay, you want to think about these big things. And being a doctor obviously was one of those. However, they really the only doctors I knew were finally practiced my pediatrician. That was it. So, and I always thought I want to be something kind of special, unique, different. And so when I was the end of my unit, end of my junior year in high school, there was a career day where a medical college came and talked about respiratory therapy and radiation technology. And so I asked the question, I said, well, is there a doctor that works with x-rays? I mean, I didn't know at that time. And they said, sure, radiologist. I said, okay. I hadn't heard of that before. I said, that's what I want to be. Right, right. And I had an uncle who lived out here in California. This was, I grew up in DC and an uncle out here in California. I talked with him. He said, yeah, radiologist can do that. So I went to college, the pre-med with the intent of becoming a radiologist. Then in college, we went to a, a field trip to a small community hospital and, and I went to the radiology department. And it was because it wasn't a big hospital. It was kind of quiet and boring. And, you know, I don't know. I said, I don't know what I want to do. Then if I had gone to a big urban, you know, university hospital, I probably would have still kept the interest. But after that, I said, no, I don't want to do that. And so I always liked anatomy. So I shifted from radiology to wanting to be a surgeon. And I went to medical school wanting to be a surgeon. But when I got to medical school, I said, okay, hey, maybe I can better serve my community by being a primary care physician. And so I said, okay, okay I, I moved from that to wanting to go into family practice. Well, sure. and visiting a, one of our you know teachers' practices, rotating there. And I was there, and I think that day I had a diabetic and some hypertensive and stuff like that that came in. And one patient who was a diabetic came in for the sole purpose of having his toenails clipped. And understandable because with diabetes and advanced diabetes, 
you have a neuropathy or, or damage to the nerves. And so you can't feel your, especially your toes, like you normally would without the ravages of, of diabetes. So you don't do damage to yourself. You have somebody else to cut your your nails. Okay, that's said, interesting. Yeah. And so I said, well, I don't think I want to do that for the rest of my life. Sure. And then, so I moved from that. Well, I had a classmate whose older sister was married to a urologist. And their house was like my second home in medical school. Okay. And the sister, uh, the wife said, you know, Leon, I think you should consider urology as a specialty. You and Winston have very similar personalities and it's a good specialty. You know, you, it's not a whole lot of emergency. It's a combination of medicine and surgery. It's not a whole lot of emergencies. The days aren't too bad. He has time to spend with me and the kids and the income is pretty good. You should, you know, think about that. And so, with that, I said, okay. So I spent time with Winston in his office, in the clinic, in the operating room. I said, okay, I can do this. And then I did some more elective rotations on that. And the rest, as they say, is history. Okay. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, that is wonderful. That's wonderful. So what are your principles of leadership that you find most valuable? Well, one of the things that I try to bring into leadership has to do with how I best learn. When I was going through training, you know, I am sure. not one, you know, I had some colleagues who, if they made a mistake or, you know, something they, they would get, you know, we get hollered at or cursed out or whatever like that. And, mm-hmm. and some people would just kind of thrive on that kind of adversity and kind of rise to the challenge. And I was not one of those, you know, I mm-hmm. liked better. So, okay, point out my mistakes and then kind of lead me because I want to be better because I want to be better. Right. Uh, not because I'm fearful or apprehensive about some repercussions or, or being yelled at or cursed at or instruments being thrown at me in the operating room, something like that. I want to be better. And so, you know, I don't want fear to be my motivating factor. So right. because of that's how I like to learn, that's kind of how I like to treat people, especially those who I am in a leadership position over, or at least a, a superior position over. And so I, I like the nurturing approach. So I kind of try to apply that in my leadership functions. And I think the other thing that kind of goes with that I find important is allowing folk the opportunity and the space to tell their side of the story. Right. One of the things I learned when I was at one of the local hospitals and I was chief of staff and chair of the peer review committee. Before that, peer review is a time where the errors and mistakes that are made are discussed and say, okay, what went wrong? How can we fix it? What did you do wrong? What do you need remediation in or whatever? And so, but it was very, it became a contentious type of situation because you would get, you people would understandably and naturally get defensive. You know, you don't know, don't want somebody who was not there in the moment to kind of criticize you for what you did or didn't do or how you did what you did. And so, you know, I decided that what I would do is that, okay, instead of making it kind of a contentious adversarial situation, I would say, okay, we found the committee found this that appears to fall out of the, the norm. Can you tell us about what happened? Sure. And that way it, it kind of, they don't become defensive because they're not being attacked. They're just allowed to tell their side of the story. And nine times out of the 10, they will say, hey, I know I probably should have done this or whatever. They give an explanation 
And then you can say, hey, you know, that wasn't really a bad thing. You thought it through. You knew what the possibilities were. You had bad luck or, yeah, you know, now hmm, I shouldn't have done that. And right. in, in the leadership position I've had, I've tried to use that principle as well. Say, OK, tell me about this. You know, somebody comes to me complaining about a colleague. OK, then I go to the colleague and say, OK, hey, tell me about this situation. And so and try to limit the defensiveness of people and allow them to give their perspective or whatever the situation is and to not be intimidated or feel threatened that they are in jeopardy for what they did or how they respond to a description of the incident. And so I just try to kind of do that whenever I'm going to give everybody a chance to to say their piece and be engaged and be involved. And I try not to be authoritarian in my management style. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. So how many people do you lead on your team right now? So I am within the department, within the clinic, there's probably about 20 staff and then the physicians that I'm in charge of, there's probably another 10 to 15 that about that, that really kind of at some point in the clinic. And so, and then the residents that are there. So that's kind of where, but my job is not too bad because we have a nurse manager and a practice manager there. So I'm kind of the liaison between them and the staff and sure. the, uh, the medical staff. And they kind of run the actual nursing staff and everything. But we are really in simpatico when we kind of talk things over and say, hey, this has to happen or we need this or this was not right or the nurse made this mistake. We need to fix this and everything and try to make it as efficient and make it as user friendly for the physician, for the patients, and for the staff. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So up to maybe uh, 50 people under under your wing and a lot of personalities there, a lot of yeah. personalities. And so, mm -hmm. and being a leader in my organization, I can definitely understand that leadership style. I believe that I have the same type of leadership style. And when we do have conflict, instead of taking one side, listening to one side at, at a time, sometimes I'm bringing us all together and just mm -hmm. have a conversation and like you said be the liaison and sometimes the referee yeah <laughs> and to <laughs> to let individuals talk speak their mind be understood and communicate and then most of the time they work their own problems out yeah. and yeah. you know mm -hmm. you just stay in that role of you're there to understand and listen to both and be neutral but at the same time be very deliberate about finding a solution and yeah. so I found that way of communicating and way of leading more effective than any other way, just dropping down the hammer and blaming mm -hmm. people and pointing fingers because you make whatever individual that may have made the mistake or been the aggressor, you know, feel bad and then their production goes down. And so yeah. it becomes a domino effect. So to do it that way definitely is more effective in, in my mind. So yeah. I agree with you on that. And I think that because of being a physician, just the didactics of what we do, we are receiving a lot of information about a patient comes into the office or the emergency room and they present with these these symptoms. And so you're taking what they present with and your mind is saying, okay, what are the possibilities, the possible explanations for this? And you're saying, okay, this fits, this fits, oh, but this doesn't fit, you know. And so you are kind of incorporating all those things in to to make a decision. And because of that, 
it's hard to be off the cuff, black and white. There's you have to realize that there is some nuance there. There's a lot um, of gray. There's a lot, there's of, gray lot, lot, lot of gray. And if you're cognizant of that gray, then, you know, you can make the appropriate decision and understand where it's coming from. I mean, I think there's a, a saying that I, I use all the time given to students and residents and everything that people who spend time with, even in community lectures, I say, and it's a quote by the father of modern medicine, Sir William Osler. He said, it is not so much what disease the patient has, it's what patient has the disease. And so- Right, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. It's to say you are not just a statistic because what the book says is supposed to happen or, or how you're supposed to be treated may not be appropriate for you for any number of reasons. And right. so the same thing applies, I think, in the management space to say, okay, we got this issue but let me see. Okay, mm, this person, you know, this person has some issues. Well, you know, she's fighting custody for custody for her, of her kids. So maybe even on its face, something bad happened. But okay, can that be whatever judgment be mitigated? Understanding what they are going through personally, or you know, sure. those types of things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All of the things that you've learned in your industry and the experience that you've had, what are your personal rules that you utilize on a daily basis and how do you apply them to your life? Probably I would say two. And they come, one is a result of my spiritual background and the other is kind of the result and a reaction to that same spiritual background. So the first sure. I would say is a quote that I use and I'm not sure where it originated. I tend to attribute it to Fannie Lou Hamer, but I'm not sure if it came from her. But it says the service is the rent you pay for the space you occupy. Mm, that's good. And so I try to remember that I am very blessed to do what I do, to have the opportunity to have trained and gone to school and everything, because so many people who you know, came from where I didn't have that kind of favor or, or success or opportunity. And so trying to remind myself to be cognizant of that what all that I have is a blessing sure. and to behave accordingly. And so because I feel I've been given more than certainly that I deserve, so to speak, I need to be able to give back. And so the service that I give is my means of, okay, how can I give back? How can I share to whom much is given, much is required, you know, freely have received, freely give, all these kind of biblical references that have practical application and to say, yeah. okay, so service is, that's kind of number one. And then the other is kind of a result of, of going through a deconstruction of sorts with my own spirituality or whatever. And it you know, obviously it applies beyond the spiritual realm. It can professionally, personally, whatever is the idea that Whatever you believe, whatever your stance is, questioning, challenge, criticism are not mandates to change, but they are opportunities and invitations to engage and to grow and to confirm such that if what you believe or your opinion or your worldview, whatever, cannot stomach challenge and criticism critique or questioning, then one of two things is true. Either you're not very secure in that belief or stance or worldview, or it wasn't worth having in the first place, or right. both. 
or both, um, right? And so I think that in that space, when you have a discussion or even debate, or someone challenges you or criticizes you, either you will hear what they have to say, hopefully you will hear what they have to say, and you will say, okay, I heard what you said, I disagree. I will continue to embrace what I believe. Or you will say, you know what? There's some validity to what you're telling me. Maybe I need to kind of adjust my worldview a little bit. And then the third, or you completely reject what you have been taught and learned before. Say, okay, hey, some, I just had the discussion with Derek and, you know, Derek made me see something different. So I got to change what I was believing now. And now I end up embracing what, you know, how you informed me and educated me. And so I think for me, that perspective comes really, I've embraced that as a kind of a mantra and say, hey, I can, I can, this is how I can look at it, look at this. And uh, I think those are the two things, the service and being willing to be humble with your perspectives and opinions. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, and uh, last question for you. I understand that you are part of a, a great nonprofit organization. So what made you join the 100 Black Men of Orange County? And then the second part of that question is, what impact has that organization had on the local community in Southern California? Great, great question. I would say the 100 Black Men of Orange County, obviously, is one chapter of over 100 chapters worldwide. And I became engagedly drawn to it from a desire to kind of make a difference in the community, in my ethnic community. And so, okay, again, from the the principle and the motive of, of service and giving back. So how can I have, based on the, the gifts I have and the tools that I have and the talents I've been given, the expertise, what can I do to, to give back to the community? And so that was an invitation. And then I, I came in, I don't know, 20 years ago, I don't know what it was, but getting engaged in the health and wellness initiative for the future pillars of the organization. And that's how I kind of found my way into the organization and become involved. I was right now. I'm kind of a you know you know bystander, so to speak. Uh, still a member, but my son is in the program, the mentoring program, Passport to the Future. But I was more actively engaged, you know, years ago as a member of the board and formal, you know, chair of the health and wellness. Team. But the hundred Black Men of Orange County, I think, is instrumental to the community in in I think several ways. Number one. They are an a example. They are a model to be lifted up within the community in terms of breaking down stereotypes of, of where Black men are in this country and what they have contributed uh, to the country. And especially in the space of Orange County, which is basically 2% Black, to, I mean, people say, hey, are there 100 men in Are there 100 Black men in Orange County? Right, right. Men, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think it allows us to represent the best of who black men are and to give to change the narrative. And then just by that representation, the number two is we the exposure that we give to the community because of what we do. And then and what we do is being the mentoring and being a role model for young black men. What they see they will be. Real men giving real time is are, are the models that we employ. And so our contribution is not always something that can be seen immediately. You know, we've had these young men for 
a minimum of a year, but some up to six years consecutively. And then we know that the fruit, the outcome, the the metrics of outcomes have been you've got all these young men who end up matriculating into college, who who get jobs, who become entrepreneurs, who become professionals and contribute to to society and the black community. And so I think it, you know, the Hundred Black Men is a great organization to be engaged in. I mean, from a selfish point of view, you know, it allows me some fraternization and community and fellowship with Black men, but also it allows me to feel like, okay, I am again engaging in service. I'm paying my rent once again. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, I really appreciate your time and sharing your life story and your true purpose. I encourage you to continue the great work that you've done and that you still will do moving forward. I appreciate and honored to be your associate, your friend, and your man in arms in this organization of 100 Black Men of Orange County. It's been a pleasure working with you and looking forward to a lot of the things that we're going to be doing in the very near future. So uh, thank you once again for joining me on my podcast today. And it's definitely been a pleasure. And is there uh, any last words you'd like to to say to the listeners? And after you do make those comments, please let the listeners know how to get in contact with you. I would just like to encourage people just the, the idea of any, nothing more to embrace the idea of service being the rent you pay for the space you occupy, whatever is your area of endeavor that try try to find a way to serve your community, serve, you know, the country, whatever, just be be mindful of service. And as far as, you know, reaching me, probably the easiest way to contact me is is through my email. I mean, I don't have a website per se, but mseardhs.uci.edu, or you can search me, you can, you know, Google me through the UCI School of Medicine and Department of Urology, you can find me there. But that's a way to contact me, but I just kind of really want to encourage, and it's a reminder myself to continue to be of service and to encourage others. I must put a kind of a shameless plug, just being the idea because of my specialty urology, black men have the highest incidence of prostate cancer in the world. And so my brothers, my sons, my cousins, my fathers and uncles, if you have not been getting yourself checked starting at age 40 with the blood test, the PSA, and potentially a digital rectal examination as well, as well uh, you need to do that on an annual basis so that the incidence of prostate cancer among us can be decreased. And should you even be diagnosed, it will be caught early enough that it can be completely cured and you will have a long and productive quality and, and length of years. Absolutely. That is wonderful. Thank you once again, Dr. Leon Seard, the UCI Urology Department. Thank you so much for joining us today. My and, pleasure, Derek. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, absolutely, for sure. And also, thank you for listening to the Future of Building Maintenance podcast. I've been your host, Derek E. Moore. And don't forget to like and subscribe this podcast and visit our website at www.bmotw.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn and all social media platforms under my name, Derek E. Moore. That's D-E-R-E-C-K or under my company name, Building Maintenance of Tomorrow. And on that note, once again, I'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode of our podcast and have a great day or evening and God bless. This has been a Mission Matters Network production. 
Listen to this show and browse our entire catalog by visiting missionmatters.com.